Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. That's where we're going to be at this morning. Turn in your Bibles, turn in your Bible app, whatever that looks like for you. Bring your Bible. Make sure I'm not saying anything kooky. We're continuing our study through the book of Acts, and today we're beginning a a three-part look at a study I've titled Preaching and Persecution in Pisidian Antioch. I wanted to find another P word for the ending just to keep it being in that line, but it, it doesn't work, so... It is what it is, but we're going to be basically taking us through the end of chapter 13, so this, these three parts will take us through verses 14 through 52, but in part one today, we're going to be studying verses 14 through 25, but first, uh, you know, last week we considered some of the background and context of what was going on as Paul and Barnabas made their way into southern Asia Minor, which is really the focus of this first missionary journey for Paul and Barnabas is going to be in the area of Asia Minor. That was sort of the western half of Turkey. And as we did that, we also considered some of the difficulties that they went through. First with John Mark departing from them and the relational difficulty that that would have caused. And it did cause relational difficulty, not just how it affected them in that moment, but how it affected later on Paul and Barnabas's relationship and potentially would have been their second missionary journey together is going to become a rift between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas taking John Mark, his cousin, and Paul taking Silas and them parting ways. And second, we considered Paul becoming ill and the physical difficulty that that caused. But in that, we, we saw how God was wanting to use these difficulties to bring about a, a perseverance, a character, a hope in these two men, how the Lord was wanting to lead them even through the difficulty, and how he wants to do those same sorts of things in us through our difficulties, our trials, our struggles, that he has grace for us to persevere No matter what we face, oftentimes it's not necessarily the grace in deliverance. It's a grace in a perseverance. We always are immediately wanting the deliverance. God, just take it away. But how often do we find God actually saying, I'll give you grace? We're saying, God, take it away. And he's going to go, but I'm going to give you grace for it. Like, well, give me the grace, but give me something else on top of that. Like, just Take it away altogether. And yet his grace, as he told Paul, is sufficient. It's enough for you and me. If you missed that study last week, I encourage you to go back and and listen to it. I pray it's an encouragement to you. But knowing the difficulty they were facing, both relationally and physically, it, it does give us some greater insight. It gives sort of greater depth and and power to what we're going to see as they get into the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And Paul stands up to preach knowing that he was relying heavily upon the grace and power of God in his own weakness as he sought to point these people to Jesus Christ in his preaching. And so with that in mind, again, just some context there, we're going to revisit verses 14 and 15 as we get into our study today. Luke 13, beginning in verse 14, it says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now, even without dealing with physical illness, This journey from Perga to Antioch and Pisidia was a very difficult one. It was, again, over 100 miles of traveling over mountainous terrain up into higher elevation. And on top top of that, this road was known for having dangerous individuals along it who would seek to attack and rob the travelers that would go along this route. 
It was sort of a perilous journey. Potentially, this could have been one of the things that caused John Mark to bail. You mean we're going to have to go up there? You guys know how dangerous this road is, right? And, and maybe on top of that, him thinking, and Paul's sick. Like, we can't even properly defend ourselves. Paul is just not doing well health-wise. And those potentially could have been some things that contributed to John Mark leaving. Paul arrived in Pisidian Antioch, still in poor health. But once they got there, the Sabbath day came, Saturday, and Paul and Barnabas make their way into the synagogue, and they sit down. They went to where the people were that they were trying to reach, not expecting lost people to flock to them to hear the gospel. They joined them in their synagogue service with the different elements of prayer and scripture reading from the law and the prophets that would take place. And as was common in that day, if the ruler of the synagogue noticed that a learned guest, a rabbi was present, they would be invited to share something as sort of a follow-up to the scripture reading to encourage those that had gathered, which was what happened here with the synagogue ruler asking them to share. This invitation was a divine opportunity that Paul was not going to pass up no matter how he felt physically. Seeing this, as a, in, seeing this invitation as an opportunity to tell lost people about Jesus so that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And just as an added insight, in verses 14, uh, 16 through 41, we have the very first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. It's not that he hadn't preached before this, but none of those other times of preaching were recorded for us until here in chapter 13. So let's see how Paul began his preaching by reading verses 16 through 22. It says in verse 16, Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Right away in verse 16, as Paul addresses those who had gathered in the synagogue, we find him speaking to two groups of people. He says, men of Israel, and he also said, those who fear God. This shows us that Paul noticed a, a mixed crowd as he stood up to preach, that Jews and Gentiles were present. And as Paul went there to speak specifically to his brethren or fellow Israelites, he also made sure to include Gentiles as he began this sermon, wanting them to know that the Jesus that he was going to preach was not just a savior for the Jews, but also for them too. But what we find in the first part of Paul's preaching is that he begins pointing out some pretty major moments in Israel's history. He begins with the patriarchs, he says the fathers, which no doubt was a reference to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then taking them to David, which ultimately he does so that he can point the people to Jesus, who is from the line of David. And most likely, this is sort of a condensed version of Paul's sermon that Luke records here. It's, it's likely that Paul's sermon in the synagogue from verses 16 through 41 was more than three minutes long, which is how long it took me to read it out loud in my office with the stopwatch. 
I, I have a hard time thinking that. As Paul got up, he gets this great invitation. It's just three minutes, boom, mic drop, and he just kind of walks away. Like, it could have been. The Lord can do that. I mean, he could do something in three seconds. He doesn't need three minutes. But it, it's likely that, that Luke is sort of giving the highlights here of what Paul actually shared in the synagogue. Paul begins with the start of the nation of Israel. He reminds those in the synagogue that the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, that he exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and that with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. And what we start to notice in verse 17 of Paul's preaching is that he's putting all the emphasis, notice, on what God did. He did this, and he did this, and and he moved in this way, and he brought deliverance, and he destroyed the, the seven nations. He's the one that brought you in. And, and Paul is reestablishing the rightful place of God in the eyes of all the people. Don't forget it was God who did all of it. There's these major moments in your life in the history of the nation of Israel. But please don't forget, it was God who did it. He's he's exalting the power and work of God throughout the nation of Israel's history, which really for us stands out strongly in contrast with what the nation of Israel did and did not do. We get, we get what God did, but as we consider these situations, we also have to, in contrast, go, oh, that's what they did. Not, not as good. Not so great. This reminded me of what Moses told the people of Israel when they were still wandering through the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Check out what Moses said there in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9. Speaking to to the people there, he said, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you. Why did he love you? Why did he choose you? Because he just does. He just loves you. And he goes on to say, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him, And keep his commandments. God didn't choose the Israelites because they were great. But because his love for them was great. He didn't deliver them from bondage in Egypt because they were just so, you know, worthy of deliverance. But because he is merciful. And he's a mighty deliverer who had compassion on them. And as Paul said in verse 18, he he put up with their ways in the wilderness for about 40 years, not because he owed them something, but because he was patient and gracious and merciful in spite of their constant rebellion and unbelief and complaining against him all of those years. But as Paul continues putting all the emphasis on what God did, he reminds them in verse 19 that it was God who destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan and who distributed their land to them by allotment. These were things that happened after God brought them out of the wilderness as they passed through the Jordan River. The reason the nation of Israel even had a land to call home was because God did all of it. And already, we're seeing this strong thread of grace and deliverance that Paul is lifting up as he recounts these powerful moments in Israel's history. 
But Paul goes on and he reminds them of the time after the death of Joshua where God raised up judges to deliver his people for a span of about 450 years that took them all the way to Samuel the prophet who was also the final judge of Israel. A a span of time in their history that would remind them that God wasn't faithful to them because they were faithful to to him, but that in spite of their unfaithfulness, and rebellion, he was still faithful and gracious and merciful and patient. This reminds me of what we're told in Judges chapter 2, where we're given basically a, a preface for the whole book of Judges. Check out what we're told in Judges 2, verses 10 through 22. It says, When all that generation, the generation that was alive during Joshua's life and that succeeded him when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he did had done for Israel then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, And they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And moving on to verse 17. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked. And obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. So there's sort of the preface for that time of the judges, but the final verse of the book of Judges also gives us the state of the nation of Israel at the end of the time of the Judges that Samuel was born into, Samuel being the last judge again uh, before the time of the kings. Check out what we're told in Judges 21, 25. It's the final verse in the book of Judges. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We get yet, as Paul's mentioning these things, that these weren't like glorious times for the nation of Israel. He's not lifting up like their shining moments of greatness. You guys are so great. You did all the right things. You really honored the Lord. No, as he's doing this, he's actually going, we did all the wrong stuff. God said, hey, if you do this, I'll bless you. And we're like, nah. You know, really, like things are going to be great if you do this. And he's like, meh. And Paul's not going, it's all you. Paul's an Israelite. He's going, this is us. This is our history. These were our fathers. We did a lot of bad things. We did what was right. In our own eyes, and God tried to deliver us, and he was gracious to us, and we just blew it, and we blew it, and we blew it. 
everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Sound familiar for what we're seeing still today? Yet God continued time and again to raise up deliverers for his people, even though their cycle of rebelling against him and rejecting him continued over and over. But Paul continues on in verse 21 of our text by saying that after the time of the judges, the people asked for a king, so God gave them Saul for 40 years. Again, not a great moment for the people of Israel because their asking for a king was also a rejection of God reigning over them as their king. Check out what we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 8, when it finally got to this point of the people asking for a king. It says there, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. It's almost like God's going, you're just getting a small taste of what I've been experiencing for hundreds and hundreds of years. The people of Israel wanted what the other nations had. They wanted a physical king that they could look to, their guy, that they could send out to battle for them and to have judged them. They didn't want God as king any longer. But as Paul continued reminding them in this synagogue service in verse 22, later The king the people desired, Saul, was removed by the Lord because of his disobedience to the Lord. And instead, God raised up David as king, a man after God's own heart, which was actually something God said about David as a youth before he had even been anointed as king and was still just a lowly shepherd boy out in the fields who was so lowly and despised in the eyes of his father and his brothers that when Samuel does come to anoint one of the sons as king, they left him in the field. They brought all the other sons, except for David. Samuel had to go, is there anybody else? Makes it through like six boys. Anybody else? Well, there's this, there's this other one. There's this other guy, he's kind of ruddy. He's out in the field, he smells like sheep. That was the guy that God chose. A man who would do all his will, Paul says. Check out this account we read in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. It says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Because of Saul's disobedience, the kingdom was taken from him, and ultimately the kingdom was given to David and his line. The Lord's testimony of David was that he found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. God took David from being a shepherd and made him a king. And from David's line, God was going to bring the king of kings, the great shepherd of God's sheep, the Messiah, God in human flesh. Paul's been pointing out these major moments that are actually major fails also in the nation of Israel. And now he's going to take David and 
now draw a line to Jesus. So we see that in the next verse, but actually let's read verses 23 through 25. Paul goes on to say in his sermon here in verse 23, from this man's seed, speaking of David, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. After bringing up these major points again in Israel's history, leading up to David, who God had made specific promises to when it came to his kingdom and line and the coming Messiah, Paul then made a beeline from David to Jesus, from David's seed, his lineage, according to the promise God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. Jesus was the one that they had been waiting for. God had been guiding his people Israel throughout all these major points in their history with all of their rebellion and ultimately God's plan was to bring about a savior for Israel and all of humanity and that being fulfilled in Jesus's first coming. Paul's reminder of the history of the nation of Israel makes it abundantly clear that what was needed for the nation of Israel and for all of humanity is that we need a savior. Those things we saw in the history of the nation of Israel of of pride and rebellion and rejection of the Lord and idolatry, rejection of his word, rejection of his authority, are things present in all of us and can be traced throughout all of human history. Things that clearly show us our sinfulness and need for a savior. And we have that savior, his name is Jesus. But this reminder by Paul of Israel's history also clearly shows us the grace and mercy and patience and faithfulness of God. His pursuit after a a wayward people that he had every right to give up on and cast away, but he didn't. Reminding us that God is gracious and and merciful and patient with us. He's faithful toward us that he pursues after us in our waywardness, our unfaithfulness, our rebellion, our pride still today. Even after coming to a saving knowledge of him, how many of us could still see ourselves in some of the things we see with the nation of Israel? We're like, yeah, I've got some pride. Yeah, I've wandered. I've blown it. I didn't want God to be reigning as king over my life, so I kind of took the reins. I made my own decisions. I blazed my own trail. And yet God has pursued after each of us. His spirit constantly speaking into the depths of our hearts. Reminding us of who our God is. These things are such needed reminders still today for us. Paul draws this line from David to Jesus. And and he's going to really expound upon their need for Jesus and the the truth about Jesus in the verses that we'll look at next week. But in verses 24 and 25, he, he gives another proof that Jesus was the Savior that God raised up by by mentioning John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah prophesied about in Old Testament Scripture. John's ministry was one of preparation, preparing the hearts of the people for the Messiah, for Jesus. He preached about repentance. He called people to be baptized, to get into the waters as a sign of their repentance, which again was was just preparing people's hearts 
so that when Jesus' time of ministry began, those people would be pointed to Jesus who alone could provide forgiveness and salvation for them. But Paul's mention of John the Baptist makes it clear that, that people in other parts of the Roman Empire knew who John was, which shows us that John's life and ministry was powerful and influential. John was considered a prophet by many Jews at the time he was ministering and after his death. Remember in Jesus' final week of his ministry when he was constantly being confronted by the religious leaders that at one point they're trying to you know get him to to say where he got his authority from and he says well tell me john's ministry was it from heaven or from men and they're like oh well if we say it's from men we're going to get stoned because all the people consider john a prophet the Pharisees were so fearful to say that John was not a prophet, but were unwilling to say it because if they did, they would have had to then recognize Jesus as the Messiah because John's ministry was all about Jesus. John was considered a prophet, yet John, when he was alive and preaching, didn't even consider himself worthy to loosen a strap on Jesus's sandal. And for us in our Western sort of culture removed from these times, that might not be very significant to us. We might just think, well, he didn't want to do it because who wants to touch somebody's dirty feet when they've been walking around all day? Like, it, it wasn't that. In, in that day, in that culture of someone kind of following a rabbi to potentially maybe one day becoming a rabbi themselves, it was actually considered beneath even a student of a rabbi for a rabbi to ask his student to loosen, hey, hey take my sandals off. That was actually off limits. That was, that was, such, a, that was such a sort of a, a disrespectful thing to ask that you couldn't even ask the lowest of people to do it. And John's going, I'm so low I can't even do that for Jesus. Jesus is so much greater than me that I can't even do that for Jesus. That'd be too great of an honor to be asked to do, to loosen his sandal strap. But Paul brought up John in his sermon because John, again, was all about Jesus. Jesus was the focus of John's ministry. John elevated. He honored Jesus and made sure others knew how unworthy he was in light of how great and worthy and powerful that Jesus was. At one point in John's ministry, and John had a thriving ministry, tens of thousands of people, maybe even upwards of a hundred thousand people flocking to John from different parts of the nation of Israel and surrounding areas. And, and, and at one point, John's disciples start to, to notice that the people that were flocking to John weren't coming like they were before. And they say to John, John, hey, people are starting to go to Jesus. I don't know if you recognize this, but your ministry is kind of diminishing here. The people that were following you are starting to follow Jesus. And you know what John's response was? Is he must increase, I must decrease. Isn't that the position that all of us should have? But that's the hardest one to take because what we often want to do as people is, yeah, we, we want Jesus to increase. But we also want to increase too. Lord, as I increase, I'll increase you too. Right? None of us want to go, yeah, Lord, make me lower so that you can be seen as greater. And yet John, in, in his humility, in his recognizing his calling, his specific calling to be one 
who was a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Messiah. He was perfectly content for people to stop coming to him because they were supposed to come to Jesus all along. John was all about Jesus. And in his ministry, John, who was actually the last of the Old Testament prophets being born six months before Jesus, declared powerful truths about Jesus. Paul quotes John the Baptist in verse 25, but we see the Apostle John later on in his gospel account in John chapter 1 tell of that scene with John the Baptist that Paul mentions here. I'm going to show you two passages of Scripture from John chapter 1. First, in John chapter 1, verses 19 through, through 27, it says, Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And then picking up in verse 29 of that chapter, John continues to give this account. He says, then the, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but... He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This is John's testimony. What is he saying about Jesus? Not only is Jesus greater than me, he's not just going, He's better. I'm bad, he's handsome, I'm not very good looking, he's better at fishing, I'm not so great. It's not like he's just going like, this dude's just, a, he's just better. He goes, this is the lamb of God. This is the sacrificial lamb of God that's gonna take away all of our sin. He's the son of God. He's not just saying he's just a better human. He's a divine being. He's God in human flesh. This is the guy I was talking about. So as Paul's mentioning John in the people's mind and maybe Paul expounding in a way that Luke does not record for us would have become clear that Paul's mention of John was to reinforce what Paul was about to say about Jesus so that these people would understand that the man that they considered a prophet, John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest man to ever be born of a woman, the greatest in the kingdom, that he said it's all about Jesus. It's Jesus. Paul is wanting these men of Israel, his 
fellow Jews and, and those who feared God, the, the Gentile worshipers who were present, to know how great their need for a Savior had always been. And to know that Jesus is that Savior who God raised up and, and that John had pointed everyone to. And as Paul has been building it all up to this point in his sermon, about a minute and a half in by my reading, that I made about 40-something minutes. We're going to see next week that Paul's going to further elevate, further magnify who Jesus is, what he accomplished for us, and, and the responsibility that each person has to respond to the truth of Jesus and the grace that he offers by believing, putting our faith in him in order to be justified, to be made righteous in the sight of God because of Jesus' salvation. Paul in this synagogue is pointing out again even though he's not specifically saying, and God was gracious here, and God was gracious here. These people who only knew the law, who didn't understand really what grace was, Paul is, is making the grace of God shine forth in these moments that they would have been well acquainted with so that after he gets done preaching as he encourages those who responded he will tell them to continue in the grace of God but we'll get into that next week now the worship team come back up in closing guys Israel's history at least different aspects of it again it resembles our history not just our nation's history, but every nation, every individual who's ever been born, every single one of us being born into sin, resembles our history, pride and rebellion and rejection and unbelief and complaining, straying from the Lord, doing what's right in our own eyes. But God's track record shown in the history of the Israelites should speak volumes to us today, should encourage us and stir in us even greater love and worship of the Lord because he hasn't changed. He's the same. He's still gracious. He's still merciful and patient and faithful and he still pursues after us but should also correct any false thinking in any who haven't been living right with jesus who are saved maybe first just stop you know stopping making excuses for their sin and to take it seriously like god does and and to repent of their sin you know that word confess the bible says confess your sins that word confess means to speak the same thing about something as someone else does. And when we confess our sin to the Lord, we're, we're calling our sin what God does. Because sometimes we downplay our sin. Some, sometimes we try to sweep it under the rug, but it's so important for us to actually say the same thing about sin that God does. And then to turn away from those things. But, but the second thing I would say with that is that maybe for some, what's needed is to stop listening to the condemnation of the enemy who might be speaking to some that, you know what, God, God won't take you back because of your failures. Because clearly God is ready to forgive any who will come to him in humility and repentance. That's clear throughout the history of the nation of Israel and, and how God moved. But look, if you've come today and you don't just first have a personal saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and by that I mean, you know what, there, there's not been a point in your life where you came to the Lord in, in, in humility and said, God, I'm a sinner. 
and I'm in need of a Savior, and, and I believe that, Jesus, you died on the cross for me. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave, and, and would you forgive me, and would you come in and save me? Would you justify me? Give, give me your righteousness. If, if that's not been a decision that you've made, that decision needs to be made. Because clearly, in our own lives, as much as we might want to say something different about it, we might want to call it something different, but we all know that we're sinners. We blow it. God's standard is perfect, and, and, and how we try to make it, we miss. And he sees us in that place, and he's going, look, like I see I see that you want to do what's right. And even when you don't want to do what's right, your, your sin is separating you from me, but I can do something about it. And he did by sending his son to die on a cross for you and me to take our sin, to take our judgment and our punishment. So that all we would have to do to receive his free gift of salvation is to say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in what you did, what you provided. And, and would you save me? And this morning, that offer is being extended for any today who have not yet made that decision for Jesus. So I want to give that opportunity this morning. And even as we close in prayer here, maybe for you this morning, it's just recognizing some things in your life that God's been going look like those things are present that don't belong. Just bring your life back into realignment with me. He wants to meet you where you're at. He wants to give you grace and forgiveness and mercy. Maybe for others, it's just a, an encouragement today to, to go, look, God is God has not abandoned you. He's been with you just like he was with the Israelites throughout their history. He has been with you since the beginning of your life. He has not left you or forsaken you. He's been after you and he'll always be that rock that we can stand upon. But let's respond to this this morning in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that in these things, as we consider, Lord, the nation of Israel, these moments in their history, God, that, were, that were not good moments, God. There are moments, Lord, that were actually a lot of times because of rebellion and pride and rejection. But God, you were faithful. You were present, Lord. You delivered. You were merciful. God, you forgave and gave more and more chances. And God, as we think about their history and the things that Paul said, we also recognize, as Paul did, that, Lord, the emphasis on, was on you and what you did. Lord, in spite of what the nation of Israel did in their rebellion, you did these things, Lord. You chose them. You loved them. You delivered them. God, you gave them a home. And God, ultimately, you were the one who provided your son as Savior. God, help us to recognize your hand in our own lives. God, to see how you've been present, Lord. To see how you've pursued us, Lord. To see how you've been patient with us and gracious and merciful. God, would it well up within us, God, an even greater love and worship for you. And maybe for some today, God, there's been some things out of alignment, Lord. Maybe there's been those patterns of rejection and rebellion and pride doing what's right in their own eyes, God. And maybe today for some, Lord, there's, there's, a, there's some recommitment. There's, a, there's sort of a realignment that's needed in their lives. God, would you be speaking to them? God, would you be encouraging them, Lord? Would you be telling them, Lord, that, God, you're, you're willing to forgive once again. God, you're willing to work and restore once again what's broken in their relationship with you, God, because of sin. God, if any are in a place of compromise or, or complacency or apathy, Lord, draw them out of those places, God. 
But if there's anybody here this morning and you've not first just put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've not received his forgiveness. Look, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. It never speaks of it as a far off moment. You know, once you've done all your stuff you want to do, once you've built up your life the way you want to build it, then, then will be the day of salvation. No, none of us are guaranteed another second of this life we have right now. Today, right now, is the, is the moment, it's the day of salvation. And if that's you, I'd love to pray for you this morning. If you would be willing and bold enough to stand, say, look, that's me. I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness. I want his salvation. If that's you this morning, would you stand where you're at? Maybe for some even joining us online, that's, that's you. You're in that place. Maybe someone listening to this later on. I just want to encourage you in your own heart to say, Jesus, I am a sinner. Jesus, I believe you are my Savior. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave. Jesus, I put my faith in you today. Would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you save me and seal me? And God, would you pour out your spirit upon me and empower me to live for you? Jesus, be my Savior, be my Lord. Be my God. I just encourage you as you do that, angels in heaven are rejoicing. We rejoice with you as well. But Lord, as we respond now to your word and praise, as we take the communion elements and we, we meditate on what Jesus has done for us through, through the cross, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed, the forgiveness of sins that has been provided, Lord, the new covenant of grace that we've been brought into. God, would would these things bring us to even deeper places of worship of you? God, that we would worship you because you're you're worthy. Lord, would we see you for how great you truly are, Lord, and we would we sing your praise. God, not from a place of timidity, Lord, but from a place of gratitude and boldness. And so, God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. God, continue to move in our midst, we ask, and we pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.